Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Today we are doing something a little different. We are doing a podcast talking about the idea of reconstruction. And so we've got a conversation with Brian Zahn and then my good buddy Paul Nevison. Uh, We're going to have both those conversations on. But let me first explain kind of why we're doing this. Um, I really like the idea of exploring an idea that's not just important to me, but it's an idea that seemed to come up over and over again uh, with guests on the podcast. Maybe that's why I've wanted to talk to them because it's been my own experience. And so we've, we've used the language. Uh, Richard Rohr talks about order, disorder, and then uh, reorientation. Uh, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Uh, Paul Ricoeur talks about uh, naivete and then the desert and then a second naivete. Uh, Brueggemann uses the language of uh, orientation, disorientation, reorientation, um, construction. De- they're all the same thing. I think I just messed that up. But all three of them are, are explaining the same basic arc where you start with something that becomes in a lot of ways like the training wheels that get you going. But then eventually you realize it's not working for you. And a lot of times people deconstruct their faith or it goes into disorder and they don't have any tools. They don't have resources. They don't have a community. They don't have someone to give them language to reorientate them to another way of doing faith and a natural next progression. And I think a lot of what I think I found the community that, that's a part of this podcast is, is people who are who are in this reorientation phase, who are looking for this new language, who don't want to step away from faith, but want to have a faith that can be reconstructed. And obviously, when you go through this phase, you you can't go back to what you started with. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing to look down upon. It it served its purpose. It helped you get, get to where you are, but you can't go back there. And instead, you have to either give up on faith or you have to start something brand new, Um, a a new phase in your journey. And obviously it's not brand new because I think ultimately the heart of what reconstruction is, is it it does transcend where you were before, but it also includes what you came from. And so one of the the key factors uh, or or key uh, repeatable practice is the idea of taking things that you started with, doing them again, but with a brand new perspective on it. And so you take the same practices that maybe you used to get you going, but now you have a whole new light shed upon them, and they have much deeper and fuller meaning. And so what I want to do is I have this conversation with Brian Zahn because his book, uh, Turning Water to Wine, tells his story of his uh, orientation, disorientation, reorientation, and he does it not in, like, seclusion, not by himself, but he is the senior pastor and the founding pastor of a very prominent and large church, and he's in a lot of ways made a name for himself with his first construction of faith. And so he's deconstructing what has built a church, a following, uh, a group of people that really love his voice, and he's losing that voice, and then he has to find a new one. And so that's what his book talks about. And so we, we've already talked about the book back in January. But we talk about it a little bit more in this conversation. And so we talked to, to Brian. And then after that, we talked to Paul Nevison, who is a, a good friend of mine that I, I think the reason that we're friends is because we both found this uh, same phase, even though um, he's from a different part of the world. We, we found community probably around our shared appreciation of Richard Rohr and Rohr's ability to help uh, give us language and direction on reorientation. And so Paul... Um, Grew up Catholic, became a prominent member of, of Hillsong uh, in London and then in Sydney, and uh, now he's continuing to do some great work uh, as a filmmaker independently. And so we, we talk some more. We follow up on what Brian and I discussed, and um, that's it. So here we go. I hope you enjoy this, and uh, let me know if you like this uh, this different feel for a podcast. I, I'm, I, I think it turned out well. I really do, and um, I'll be interested to know what you guys think. All right. See you, friends. Okay, uh, so BZ, your book came out back in uh, the beginning of the year. Was it January or so? And it's Water to Wine. And the book kind of describes your own construction, deconstruction, reconstruction of faith, but it happens kind of on the go. Like that's what's really fascinating to me about your journey is that it all happens <laughs> while you're in front of a church yeah, leading it's it true. as a that's, I think part of what makes it interesting 
especially for other pastors, which I think all kinds of people have perhaps read Water to Wine, but I get a lot of communication from other pastors who maybe are interested in the idea that I did this you know, while remaining the pastor of the church, tried to bring the whole church with me. I didn't bring the whole church with me, but I, now, brought, for people, you know, I brought the church with me. Um, <laughs> yes. There is a church still. Uh, it's a different church. But that was what I was going to say is the story is that you paid a big price for going through this transformation while you're, quote-unquote, in office. And I think that's what makes it so compelling is that you are willing to go through and pay the price to be honest and authentic to what God was doing in your life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, Luke, I, I hear from people pretty regularly about that book, you know, probably two or three, four times a week. And they'll often say, um, you'll hear this kind of language. I said, well, that was very courageous of you. That's what they say of me. And, and I appreciate that. I understand what mm-hmm. they're trying to say, but I also kind of want to say, well, no, I was terrified, <laughs> but I, I just felt like I didn't have any choice. I mean, what was I going to do? One of the things I say in the book is you can't unknow what you know and be true to yourself. So once mm-hmm. I began to make these discoveries theologically and about Jesus, what am I going to do? Am I just going to pretend that I don't know that? Yeah, I'm going to be try to be wise. I'm going to try to be not reckless, but I am going to try to bring my church with me. Those who, who, in, to some degree, their soul is entrusted to my care. I'm going to try to bring them on. I, I didn't really see it as a choice I had. I mean, I signed up to follow Jesus, and when I, when I got on his trail again in midlife picked up the trail and saw a new way forward, well, then I'm going to try to bring people with me. That's just, that's, that's just what I'm going to do. I'm not mm-hmm. going to pretend um, that I'm still some sort of you know, charismatic word of faith quasi-fundamentalist when I wasn't. So that's what I did. Yeah. Well, okay, so if people are saying, BZ, that was really brave of you, courageous of you to do that, the underlying statement is there's some of us who wouldn't do that. Like you're not, they're not saying it's bold and courageous if everyone's going, yeah, that is the right thing to do, and I would definitely do it. Why, why do you think so many people well, would be afraid I mean, to do that? I suppose it has to do with um, job security. I, that's, the only, that's the only thing I can think, and maybe you know, just not wanting to receive ridicule from friends. But, you know, come on, man. That's a yeah. You know, now, admittedly, I did have, you know, I'm the founding pastor of a non-denominational church. By the way, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in non-denominational churches. I just happen to pastor one. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's how the cards were dealt me. And so it's what yeah. happened, but I don't necessarily yeah. endorse that. But being the founding pastor of a mm-hmm. non-denominational church what I didn't have is I didn't have a hierarchy telling me I couldn't do this. Now, it doesn't mean that the church is going to go with me. I'm still risking everything. But I at least have I, – I at least I could lose my church, but I wasn't going to be fired, if you understand what I'm saying. So I did have yeah, that no, liberty, yeah, I, which not everyone has. I get that. Yeah, I, I get that. And I used to be a church planner, and uh, then I transitioned to an established church. And so I, like, I get the, the different dynamic, um, but it's still painful well, regardless. I don't want to underplay the pain. The pain was very real. I mean, really real, too real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I heard a line from uh, one of my mentor-type people who said, people only change when the pain to stay the same is finally greater than the pain it would be to change. And so you, you, you can't stay there. And so for you, it sounded like you're saying, like, you have to be authentic and you didn't have another option. And so as I've heard you talk and you write about your story, the big way that change happened, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you became like this voracious reader and just became inundated with the, the Brueggemann yeah, and that's, Tom Wright's Yeah, that's mostly true. I hesitate to say that's exactly what happened because it makes it sound a bit too cerebral and academic. So 
Yeah. In there is, I, I don't want people to say, oh, he just became an egghead. Okay, I get it. That's not really what happened. What happened was there really was this genuine spiritual discontent that I had little mm-hmm. other recourse to address other than in prayer, fasting, and seeking mm-hmm. God. But the result of that was an encounter with books that showed me a way forward. And to say I became a voracious reader is almost an understatement. In fact, I can look back. I still read a lot. I mean, I read, <laughs> I read all the time. But I look back, let's say from 2004 to 2007, 8, something like that. Let's say four years. Um, the number of books that I read during that time, I, I'm, I'm sort of astounded by it. And yet, no, but I mean, it may have been... It may have been as many as a hundred pretty substantive theological books a year. I mean, I was just, I mean, I found, let's, for example, I found N.T. Wright and then just read everything. I mean, I started with his big books, you know, New Testament, the people of God, Jesus, the victory of God, resurrection, son of God. That's as many as he had at that mm-hmm. point. Uh, and yet at no point did it feel like labor or work. I was like a guy, hmm. I was like a prospector that had struck gold and just could not pull it out of the ground fast enough. Yeah, it's work, but I mean, I'm almost laughing, giggling, happy the whole time. And so what I would do, I would come home, let's yeah. say I get home around five, I would start reading about six and would read till midnight or later. <laughs> I did this every night. And, um, but I was I was in my own late night seminary, and yet I didn't think of it as an academic exercise. I thought of it as I am making these discoveries. I am participating in this great conversation about God revealed in Christ that has been going on for 2,000 years. I feel so privileged that now I can be a part of this. And yes, yes, it involved reading. You know, because I couldn't get N.T. Wright and Walter Brueggemann to come to my house and sit there and talk with me. So, you know, I had to read their books and I certainly wasn't going to get, you know, Irenaeus to come talk to me. So I had to read, you know, his books. But but that's what I was doing. Yeah. And. Yeah, you should have gotten you should have gotten a podcast <laughs> so they would talk to you. I that's exactly. your flaw, man. I have got to know some of these people now, especially yeah, okay, so, Walter Brueggemann. Who, you've had him on, right? Mm hmm. I, Brueggemann is like the one big name scholar that yeah, I, a, I read a whole lot that I haven't actually talked to. Partly, no, I'm he's scared delightful. Of him, I he's think. kind I mean, and funny and I'm, warm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've walked by him. At I mean, a I know. I understand I, that I, he. I'm scared of him. If, from afar, he comes across. He's, he studied the Old Testament prophets so much that he turned into one. But actually, in person, he's very <laughs> kind no, and I, warm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I quote him. Uh, his commentary on Genesis is one of my favorite. But so you you have the, this voracious appetite to learn, but it starts with this sense. But of even, even to say learn, Roar. yes, it involves learning, but I don't want to cast it in such academic sense. It, yeah. I know it sounds hyper spiritual and religious and all that, but it was I wanted to discover God as revealed in Christ, and that's what I'm doing. Yeah, it involves learning, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't just, okay, I can fill my head with theological facts and, and I can impress people that I know so much theology. No, that wasn't ever what was going on. Okay, I know. I yeah. just wanted to say that. Well, no, no, I'm a preacher. I like to talk, too, uh, and clarify things. I think what I've assumed about this process of construction, deconstruction, reconstruction is that it doesn't start intellectually. It starts experientially. And there is a bit of suffering or some sort of pain that that typically causes it to start. And so Rohr talks about, we change across many religious traditions, there's two ways that change happens, the way of love slash prayer or the way of suffering. And I think more often than not, it's suffering that leads people to change. And so when I hear your your discontent, is that a form of of suffering? Yeah, I would put it in that category. I had grown terribly discontent with the Christianity I knew, never disillusioned with Jesus. It was never a crisis of faith in that sense, but I just was deeply persuaded that somehow Jesus warranted a much richer, better, deeper, more substantive 
Christianity than I knew. And I, I didn't really know mm-hmm. how to go about finding that. I didn't know that such a thing existed. So I, I didn't know what else to do other than to pray and to fast. But the result of that was, you know, the, the first book that really came into my life that opened the door to the rest was Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy, now, it could have, I mean, which is a fabulous book. I mean, I highly recommend it. Fabulous book. Very important book. Um, but it could have been any number of, let's say, 100 books. But that was the that that happened to be the one that arrived in my life in a kind of a kind of a mystical way. I mean, I simply I had prayed one. I said, God, show me what to read, because I, I sensed that that maybe would be a way forward. And five minutes later, my wife walks in the room and hands me a book and says, here, I think you should read this book. And she had never read it. We don't even know exactly how it showed up in our house, but it was the divine conspiracy. And that kicked open a door in my mind, in my life, and just and then one thing led to another. So that's how it began. Um, but the See, I pain was that God works pain in my was life because everything my in my too. by the metrics of, of which Americans like to measure success. I was very successful. And so, you know, don't mess it up. And yet I was discontent. And 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 that that's a maybe a kind of pain. But then as I began to move forward, I knew that this would cost me. Now, I, I probably was naive. I, I I probably didn't think it would cost me as much. I didn't think as many people would leave. I didn't think as many people would think that I had gone off the deep end. Um, but, but I did know it was going to cost me. So, I, but I still, okay, I'm, I'm willing to pay that price. And then as people left and, you know, you know, to be in the, to be a pastor is to have people come and go. That's, that's the way that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had people that had been with us 20 years and that I was quite close to that maybe I had baptized, that I'd baptized their kids, um, really just think that I had, committed some sort of apostasy because I wasn't channeling the charismatic fundamentalism that they had come to equate as the faith. And that was painful. Mm -hmm. I'm in a relatively small city, 70,000 people. And if you lose, you know, a thousand or more people, it means I can't go to the grocery store without seeing former church members. So (laughs) that's part of the pain. I can talk about it now. Yeah. Um, and, and and the pain isn't as much as it was. It's 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 largely healed now. But going through that in real time was very difficult. And and I don't think I would have made it without learning how to pray well and having a few. Just it didn't take a lot, but a few really close friends. Brad Jerzak, who you might know of. Oh, okay. In the Vancouver yeah, area of British Columbia, and a guy named Joe Beach, who's pastor of Amazing Grace Church in Denver. Great friends that were able just okay. to stay with me and convince me that I wasn't losing my mind. See, see that's what my next question was going to be. Like, I hear you talk about the the mystical experiences with prayer, your reading, but most of your community is re- rejecting you to some degree. Yeah, you have a lot of your community that's, that's rejecting you. Do you, did you already know Brad and, and Joe before this, or is this people that no, came No, they, they came along during, during the, the journey, journey, and I just really view it as a gift from God. Um, I was speaking at a conference where I met Joe, and we met over Dylan. <laughs> He's a big Dylan freak like I am, and our wives mm-hmm. had met each other, and, and one— Joe's wife had said to my wife, you know, my husband's the, the biggest Dylan fan in the world. And my wife thought, no, my husband is. <laughs> and so they, they introduced us over Dylan, and that was good. In fact, it was it was Joe that introduced me to the work of N.T. Wright. And then uh, my my deep friendship with Brad Zerzak was, uh, well, it was an arranged marriage. <laughs> Uh, Jason Upton. Some people will know Jason Upton, the musician. He he knew me and he knew Brad and he just said these two guys need to meet and that was a a grace from God. And, and one more, uh, my wife. Uh, we we remarked many times that if we hadn't gone on this journey together, if if one of us had ventured off 
into this search of a more substantive, rich faith, and the other hadn't. Man, how difficult that would be. But the truth is we, we really went together. And so there was never any tension or friction in our marriage about, you know, why, why are you rethinking everything? Oh, well, um, that, yeah, been that very wasn't our case. So that, that was another grace. Uh, yeah, very fortunate. And so you have these people that come along during the journey. It's fascinating to me that as, okay, you said Joe introduced you to N.T. Wright, but you had already had the divine uh, conspiracy. You started to read that. Was your wife reading yeah. at the same time? My wife, my, my wife probably actually reads more books than I do, which is a feat. Uh, she's a, but we don't wow. necessarily, there's, there's a little bit of crossover, but we don't read. So she doesn't, she doesn't read David Bentley Hart. She doesn't read, you know, hardcore academic theology. She's conversant in it, but she just says, okay, you read that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, uh, I think, I think a good example of where we, we – we both read a lot of Richard Rohr. And then Perry's now a spiritual director. She's just now completing a three-year spiritual direction program at a Benedictine monastery near here. And, um, and, and is a, she's an Enneagram ninja. <laughs> okay. What, uh, what number are you? We had – Oh, of yeah. course you are. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect if sense. If you know me a little bit and you go, oh, yeah, 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 I see that. Yeah. yeah. With exactly. probably a five wing? Exactly. Is that You've yeah. nailed. Yeah, that's... Huh. So, okay, the fascinating thing to me is you start this journey, you don't really have, like, the Yoda figure who's kind of helping, guiding you along. You, you, you gather kind of a community right. during the process. Obviously, your wife is part of this. It seems that one of the major themes that I've experienced of people who are going through construction, deconstruction, and then they're trying to reconstruct is they often feel alone. They often feel very isolated and they don't have people to go to That's and why connect. They get with. emails from and pastors, I think that, emails or Facebook or Twitter, or whatever. Seriously, three or four a week because they feel alone. Maybe they've read my book, Water to Wine, and they think, okay, this guy will understand me. But you're right. That's what do you say? Let's what do you get suggest together. To what do you tell them? Uh, Maybe I can drive up there, there. Yes. come to one of your yes, prayer uh, conferences. A pastor's driving, I don't know, three, four hundred miles tomorrow to come have lunch with me. And I'll give him lunch and mm-hmm. and more. <laughs> so what, okay, so when you have lunch with him, do you have something in your head like this is a nugget that I've got to give him that will help him mm, keep going? I mean, no, not necessarily. I, I just... Do you have a greatest hits of things you typically go I to I let them direct the conversation, but it tends to go the same places. Uh, Which is, they have been reading N.T. Wright or they've been reading Richard Rohr. Those are the two names that come up the most. And yeah. uh, it's opened a door to a whole new world for them. They're enthralled by it. They're thrilled by it. It's saving their Christian faith, and yet they're scared to death about what this is going to mean for them vocationally as a pastor. And so we just talk. Yep. And then, that, then they have yep. que- they'll, they'll have questions about uh, atonement theology, questions about eschatology, Mm-hmm. questions about hell, um, these things come up a lot. And so they want to know what I think about these things. Yeah, that's... that's. I mean, since I've had... Right there. That's without funny. exaggeration, I've had hundreds of these conversations. They they file pretty much a template. Do, do you get conversations about how do you understand the Bible now? Like, yep. the not the... Right. Yeah, but the, biblicism, how do you, uh, what do we mean by sola scriptura, the, all that sort of stuff. Do you believe yeah. in sola scriptura? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then you have to, uh, I don't know if you have to, but you probably deconstruct penal substitutionary atonement and go to Christus Victor and give a bigger picture of redemption yeah. that way, right? Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. So N.T. Wright, right, so Rohr says that he's got this growing, growing group of white evangelicals who are really connecting to his work. Yeah, you have these people who are reading Tom Wright and they read Richard Rohr. What do you think it is about Rohr? Because I'm assuming most of these people are Protestants that typically wouldn't be reading a whole lot of Franciscan priests. What do you think it is about Rohr that opens them up to something? I think Rohr gives a lot of language to this concept of falling upward, second half of life. Yep. You know, he wrote a book called Falling Upward. <laughs> yeah. And he works with 
this this concept of second half of life, which mm-hmm. touches on this idea of uh, deconstruction, reconstruction, second naivete, mm-hmm. and it typically. Hey, I get, I get a lot of young guys come see me too. I get a lot of young guys, I mean, you know, in their 30s who have kind of in, grown up in this first half of lifestyle Christianity that are now finding a way out of it. And they're just more excited than anything to talk theology with me. The mm-hmm. guys older, my age, uh, are experiencing this in maybe a, a deeper and perhaps more painful, but also more. Uh, well, just just a more existential way of of okay, I am entering a second half of life, and Roar speaks to that, and and you know, and Roar comes from a you know, Roar has always been around evangelicals. He he comes he went through his charismatic Catholic period mm-hmm. in the seventies, and that just involved him with a lot of non-Catholics, and uh, he, he knows how to speak that language. And I, I don't think, I've not met Richard Rohr. I have a lot of friends that know him. I don't know him. But but I would say, despite the fact that he's a Franciscan priest, he's probably no more Roman Catholic than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah, I, I sometimes I erroneously just picture, oh, everyone's like Rohr, who's a uh, Catholic priest, and I I know that's definitely flawed. Um, and I've got to spend some time with Roar, and he is just amazing. Um, so I, I hope you have that opportunity sometime. Yeah. Now, I get the young pastor coming to you in his 30s, because, you know, I am a young pastor in my 30s. I, I get that. Um, what's interesting to me is the the older pastor, who, or the older person, who is having the existential crisis of being in the second half of life. Could, could you explain more about what that, that crisis yeah, is? And they tend not to be quite as old as I am. I'm 57, and for whatever reason, I don't know, I think you get into your 50s, and the odds start plummeting that you're going to really be willing to rethink a lot. Why is that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, why is it? I, 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 I mean, I don't know. People get old. They get tired. They get lazy. They get content. They get yeah. playing it safe. They want security. You know, why rock? Why rock the boat at this point? You know, I guess it's that sort of thing. Okay. Um, I, on the one hand, I understand it. On the other hand, I, I think this is why Nicodemus amazes me. Nicodemus comes to Jesus as the teacher within the Pharisee movement, the tenured professor uh, with all of his best-selling works, and he comes to Jesus by night, a little bit secretly, and he says, I, I, I just can't quite process this. I know God is with you. I can't go along with my colleagues that say, you know, you're doing these works by the devil. And yet this is forcing me to reevaluate everything. And Jesus says, all right, unless you take it from the top, born from above, born again, rethink everything, you'll never even be able to perceive the kingdom of God. And the amazing thing is, um, you know, Jesus uses that metaphor. Nicodemus isn't daft. He gets the metaphor, so he plays along with it. And he says, well, really, you know, can, a, can an old man do this? And Jesus says, well, yeah, verily, verily. That's the choice you have. Either you rethink everything or you're going to miss everything. And he does it. And as impressed as I might be with Peter and James and John and Andrew leaving their nets, leaving their fisherman vocation to follow Jesus, I'm much more impressed by Nicodemus, who as this um, you know, thinker, theologian, academic, is willing to rethink all of his theology late in life. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. That's but good. it doesn't happen real often, I don't think. If you're going to try to talk to someone who is contemplating doing that, but they're scared to do it, what is your pitch for why they should they should follow Nicodemus's lead? Well, I mean, think about your deathbed. <laughs> I mean, are you going to say, "Yeah, I'm glad I played it safe. I'm glad I didn't risk anything," or are you more likely going to say? It was painful. I had to go through some hard times, 
but I'm so glad that I just stayed on that journey. I can just, okay, I'll just say it this way, just speaking for myself. I, I went through very painful, difficult times, rethinking everything and doing it publicly and, and changing the trajectory of what I emphasize and preach and ministry and all of that. Uh, but I've never been more excited about being a Christian and following Jesus than I am today. Uh, it's the pearl of great price, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's, it's genuinely, I, I had a real encounter with Jesus when I was 15. And it was pretty dramatic. I don't think every conversion needs to be that way, but mine was. And I, I went overnight from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to being the high school Jesus freak. And when that happened, it forced people to get to know me again. Everybody knew me as Fry. That was my nickname. Everybody called me Fry. Nobody called me Pastor Brian. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was Fry. And Fry, you know, these are my friends I've known all my life. And I encountered Jesus. And I'm in the process of being radically altered. And they have to get to know me again. And some of them didn't like that. Some of them were fine. And others thought, you know, this is just weird. Well, what happened at 45, 30 years later, was just as radical. So I would. I would jokingly say from the pulpit, I said, I've been born again again. Hmm. And I used to use this phrase all the time. I said, I have new eyes. I'm still reading the same Bible, and yet it, it's, it seems completely new to me. Um, I did push back a little because I didn't want people to think I was just changing everything. And so I— I would I would generally say, no, I'm not changing my, my theology. I'm growing, I'm developing, with one exception, and that was eschatology. And my eschatology, there was no way around it. I just simply had to take this old dispensational eschatology and apply the wrecking ball to it because it was wrong. And my only defense is, well, I, I didn't invent it. I inherited it. It's what was given to me, but it's wrong, yeah. and so now we're going to change. Hmm. That's good. Well, BZ, I know that you are, in a lot of ways, a pastor to many pastors out there. So uh, I appreciate you uh, sharing your story. appreciate you being willing to, uh, to help others of us out. And uh, thanks for the time, man. Yeah, I loved it. Thank you. All right, man. We're just going to jump in because I'm going to cut this up anyway. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to do a real introduction. But I do thank you. Like, this is like you've been on like 100 times now. Uh, I just felt right. like I didn't have enough awesome in my life and just felt like I needed to have some more awesome. <laughs> yeah, and that's what it is. You're, you're right here. Okay, so you've, we've, I don't know when specifically we've talked kind of about your, your falling upward, your, your fa like your transition. Mm. Um, I know, I think it was on the Facebook Live thing you talked about, you grew up Catholic, you went to the Hillsong, and now you're a pre you're you're not Catholic, but you're kind of whatever you are right now. Uh, tell, do, do start with that story about um, you were the box you're supposed to check. Oh uh, yeah, for so, your religious yeah. So recently at our church, so every about every five years, there's some kind of organization in Australia, and they do like a snapshot of the church across the country, and you fill out these surveys. And there's all different questions on you know different kind of topics, and then there's one section where you sort of have to identify your affiliations, and it'll say. Know, there was all these, you know, it was Catholic and Anglican, Pentecostal, Baptist, you know, tick, tick the box. And I found it really unhelpful because I just kind of stared at all these boxes and went, well, I'm a little bit of that and I'm a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I ended up ticking about six. I think you're only supposed to tick one, but I ticked quite a <laughs> few because, I mean, the labels kind of have become really not particularly helpful anymore. Um, if there was one just big one that said Christian or Jesus follower, I probably just would have ticked that. Yeah. Do you think that's one of the characteristics of uh, a lot of people in their construction, deconstruction, reconstruction is a far more inclusive and generous embrace of all the different traditions and how we're participating in each of them in some ways? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if, 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 it, do, if it doesn't lead you to that place of generosity, then I don't think you have actually um, gone through the process yet. I think on the outside, Why of it, if, it, if, it, if, it, well, if it has to lead to more love, to more understanding, to more generosity... Otherwise, you've just kind of found yourself in a, even, you know, another tribe, you know, instead of like trying to break down tribal barriers, you've actually just created even maybe mm -hmm. a smaller one or a deeper one or, a, you know, a tribe within a tribe within a tribe. So, um, yeah. so for me, yeah, absolutely. The whole, if you don't realize that your lens is very small, um, then, you know, you, that, that's part of the journey of realizing, oh, there's actually 
people see things differently. Um, you know, these you know religious traditions have been talking about these these things and wrestling about issues for thousands of years. So you know, it's about how do I actually connect to that larger tradition, um, the biggest stream yeah. of consciousness, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a, a major staple of Reconstruction is this sense of I, I'm not trying to differentiate myself from others as much as I'm trying to uh, orient myself in a way of community and embracing others. And I don't, I think like first half of life, second half of life is part of this journey of like the first half, we're always identifying who we are by what we're against and what mm. separates us. And second half is embracing like the commonality and the humanity in all of us. And yeah, like that seems to be a reoccurring thing that pops up. I, I know you listened to um, the, the early part of this with, with old BZ and we were talking about earlier and you're like, it's crazy how common and similar this kind of story is that it's very fitting for a lot of people including in you how how bz described his journey right yeah totally like it's it's the same sort of form of the story like the details for everyone's different but it tends to be that certain kind of it's discontent it's a feeling spread thin and then wanting to go deeper and then there's your dark night of the soul of like you know what is this going to cost you know like having to you know, make different decisions and, and go a different journey. Um, but it, it, yeah, it is all, I mean, Brian's story, um, is, you know, was really helpful to me, um, for sure. Like just how his journey of, of, you know, um, the same thing. And I think the point that he made, which is really important, which I'd sort of emphasize as well, that it's not just, it's not this, like I read some books and then you become this kind of egghead, as I think Brian said. It actually starts with a with a with a longing and a, and a discontent in the spirit that then leads you on a path where maybe you'll find some books or you'll you'll listen to someone or something, and then that helps give vocabulary to what kind of the spirit was already witnessing to you um, uh, internally, anyway. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think too, like his whole you know, his whole uh, points about like that Jesus being, you know, that Jesus is the gospel, Jesus kind of is the word, um, as opposed to mm -hmm. Jesus bringing the gospel or Jesus bringing the word, you know, um, has also been really helpful. I read this thing recently, this guy, he was like an Indian missionary, like in the, you know, in the late 19th century. And he was like a contemporary of Gandhi. And he, he said, um, uh, religions are man's search for God, but the gospel is God's search for man. And for me, like like mm. that kind of ties in so beautifully with that whole. Well, actually, what is what is the word? The word is Jesus. We see it in Him. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Um, and I think yeah. all our all our attempts, which are important, you know, and you know, as best we can in our sort of faith journeys, and um, you know, the the rituals we 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 partake in, um, they're all pointing us towards. They're not the thing, but the thing that points us towards the thing, uh, which is you know, which is the divine, which is because um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think you know when we talked earlier you know a while back about that that Picasso quote which I've been thinking about a lot where you know art is the lie that re makes us realize the truth so it's the idea that art is this um, are these constructs and artificial things but when you look at a painting or you look at a, at a sculpture you sometimes realize bigger truths and it's the same for me when I think about religion now that that you know you go through these processes you, you go to churches you, you know you do worship you do different kind of religious things and the the point of them is not the thing in themselves they're the, they're the pointers that lead you to the bigger experience and i think what happens a lot and i can say for my own journey is that i got stuck in the in the pointers you know in the rituals and, and mm -hmm. sort of forgot to look past those to where those were pointing um, and I guess for yeah. me, that was part of the, the, the deconstructing is deconstructing all the things that I thought I was doing was right, weren't necessarily leading me towards God. Um, I'd sort of got stuck up, stuck in the, um, in the details and the words of things and rather what those words and what those things were supposed to be pointing me towards. Yeah, but that's what art, as I would call it, or art, as you would call it. Correct. Um, yes, you're welcome. <laughs> like they are signposts and then you realize they are pointing you to something. But what happens on the other side is not that you discard them, but that you come back and you find that there is more meaning in them when you stop trying to expect them to be something they can't deliver. And so you, you see the value in them that 
it's still there. It's been there the entire time. But mm-hmm. when you're not trying to put all the extra baggage on those things, I think they find more beauty and they they have more significance to them. Yeah. Or to- yeah. And- oh, no go. No, you go ahead, Paul. Oh no, I was just going to say like because you know like I started, I grew up as Catholic as a young kid, and Ian Cronlight talks about like the Catholic imagination. And when he spoke mm-hmm. about it, it was like, yes, that totally, totally explains my childhood now. Because when I kind of, you know, like a lot of the stuff that happened in the Catholic Mass, you know, went totally over my head. But what it did give me was this idea that <clears throat> the world and the universe teems with God, that God is very present, that God is in mm-hmm. everything and around and very present. Um, and it's sort of experiential. Um, and then so... You know, so that, but then, you know, then I kind of, you know, transitioned through to being a, you know, in a more kind of evangelical kind of, you know, it was a bit of a journey in that. But then it becomes more about words and becomes more about um, being right and, you know, proof texts and, you know, the whole sort of fundamentalist mm-hmm. thing. Um, but then, you know, it comes full circle to, re, you know, then I sort of have rediscovered some of those, that, that, um, those Catholic roots that I didn't understand as a child. And I still see them, you know, they're just rituals, um, but I understand the symbolism of them more. And so I um, find the symbolism of those things uh, meaningful. Not that I'm, a, you know, like I, I don't sign up or subscribe to a lot of what, you know, Catholic dogma is, but I can now appreciate what those some of those things were trying to point people towards. Um, yeah. So so today I had a, uh, a lunch with... Uh, one of the ladies at my lunch was uh, a member at our church who's uh, close to the age of like my grandma. And so that, you know, puts her a few years ahead of me in life. And she was talking about how you don't always get all your prayers answered, but sometimes she sees, you know, she's on her back porch and she sees like a, 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 a red bird just come fly up and sit next to her porch. And she says, you know, that's, that's God's grace. And early in my my journey would be like, yes, well, you know, God heard her prayer and God sent that bird over there. And then during my deconstruction, I would have said, well, of course that's not. Like God doesn't have a remote control and he's not micromanaging every bird. And so that's just, that's just silly. God, of course, doesn't do that. And then on the other side, you get that Catholic imagination or that, you know, reconstructed faith for me where I go, yeah, of course that's God. Because the whole earth is infused with God's goodness. And so, of course, love is all around you. And of course, God's love is displayed in a red bird that shows up on your back porch when you need it, because God is in everything. And so, it, mm. it, for me, like you talked about the discontent and the spirit working, like it was a sense of like dryness. And like it was, m- my spirituality had dried up because I'd become so cynical. And what I found is that cynicism is never satisfied. Like you, if you're always looking for answers, like you, you are never going to get 100% certainty. Like if you're trying to, uh, like buffer yourself away from like the unknown of water, like the the mysterious waters that like creep up and you're trying to barricade yourself, which that's a great idea for a book. Like if you're trying to keep (laughs) yourself, you should definitely write that. I think it's a great idea. Even if all my friends don't think it's good. Um, if you try to keep it away, like you're never going to keep it always away. Like there's always going to be mystery and uncertainty and unknown. And to move away from being afraid of that, to embrace it, um, is what would save me. But I think early in my life, it was like, I, there can't be anything that I can't explain and under understand. And that ultimately, like I said, cynicism is never satisfied. It always led me to this dried place. And that was like the discontent for me. Uh, you had a similar discontent. BZ talked about having like this discontent. Uh, I, I think previously I would have described it more as like suffering is what changes you, but sometimes it's not suffering as much as the sense that like this just isn't working. Like I, I, I can't stay here. Yeah, I think too. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. But and also I would say for like for the, and part of my journey was busyness. So you know. Um, churches you know mega churches they're constantly doing stuff busy 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 and you know like so when i moved to london and i joined hillsong in london like it was you know maybe 60 70 people at the time it was very small and then by the end of the seven years i was there it had grown to six or seven thousand people and so it was like this massive growth over a short period of time and you just like to keep like just to keep the wheels of that going is tough you know so you become busy 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 and the same when I moved to Sydney, and you know, so you can become you become spread very thin. And this is my my fault. There's not a, an indictment on on any kind of church or anything. It's just you know what it's just part of what happens. Um, so mm-hmm. for me, it became very spread very thin, and hadn't really gone as deep as as, as I probably should have. 
Um, so that leaves you then kind of, yeah, dryness due to your own busyness, uh, sort of yeah, surface sure. level stuff, you know. Um, yeah, you know that, is, um, no, yeah, yeah, like the, the Psalm, be still, know that I'm God, like often, mm. like I find myself never being still, and so of course I don't feel like I know God, because I'm not, I'm not stopping, I'm not listening, I'm not being present, and I think for me, like my spiritual formation was I literally started reading the Bible and it changed me. And I've always wanted to be like more like romantic or like more like erudite, but it really was simple. Like I just started having a Bible quiet time and it changed my life. Mm. And when, when I got to, I think grad school, a friend of mine told me, Luke, you know, you don't have to read the Bible every day to be a good Christian. And he, he was making a true statement about like the legalistic approach to piety that if you don't do like a quiet time then you're not a real christian and he was responding to kind of like the reductionistic approach to christianity that it's just do the right thing go to church read your bible and don't like do the major sins 100 true statement you don't have to read your bible every day to be a good christian but when i heard that like i stopped doing the spiritual discipline that was most formational for me and i in a sense i stopped being still and listening and in hindsight, I can see that was probably the most uh, substantial change in my life that really caused a lot of my the the cynicism to to grow was because I didn't have something else giving life into me. Mm. And now I sound like a good evangelical, don't I? <laughs> well, no. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's a rediscovery of those things because it's like these are the disciplines that you get, you know, told here's what you should do. But for me, like, mm-hmm. it's been, um, like, I went, ended up going to, a, uh, like, a, a nun, Benedictine nun as a spiritual director, and she said, oh, I think God's calling you to, um, to, to quiet, right? And so I think, oh, well, yeah, mm-hmm. I know about quiet. You know, that's what we do, quiet times and all that. But anyway, what it was really leading me was down the, the, sort of the path of contemplation. So now my favorite thing I do on a Monday, Monday morning um, is I go, there's a local Anglican church just five minutes down the road, and I go to this meditation contemplation group with seven or eight grandmothers, all in about their eighties. Mm-hmm. And we sit there and we have and we have time of contemplation. And it's one of my favorite things of the week. And it's really life giving to me. And yeah. you know, it's something I never thought I would do. But it's again, <laughs> it's like it's 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 how do you rediscover <laughs> those disciplines um, that are actually meaningful rather than oh, I have to do these things, otherwise God's got a big stick and he's gonna hit me. Rather than yeah. that's actually no, this is where we go. We we do these practices so that God can see us. I was reading this thing mm-hmm. recently about um, uh, this, uh, this concept in Hinduism about it's called darshan. I think that's you you know usually some we we say we go to church to meet with God, but they talk mm-hmm. about going to the temple so that God sees you, which is also the idea of contemplation, which Meister Eckhart talks mm-hmm. about. You know, the one eye that you see God. And, this, and the, it's the same eye that he sees you with. So it's this idea of contemplation being in God's gaze. And that's a really scary thing, right? Because sometimes yeah. in the performance mentality, we've said like, ah, oh, you know, like I have to perform, I have to do the right thing so that God will be pleased with me. When we realize, you know, which I think is part of the, recon- the after the deconstruction, the reconstruction, that God already was pleased with you, already does love you. And now it's yeah. my, now I have to accept that. And that could be really hard because it's, you know, your ego gets in the way, and it can be, you know, you have to sort of deprogram a whole lot of things. But that idea that actually I can just sit in the gaze of God and not say anything, and that's okay. Like for yeah. me, that's been so revelational over the last few years. And just something I'd missed somehow, you know, and, and the busyness of working for churches and doing, you know, trying to be be a good follower of Christ. I'd sort of had stopped following him somehow and just, you know, got caught no. up in the busyness of things. Yeah, I think... I don't know if it's it's part of being a pastor, and obviously your context um, maybe was a, a little bit bigger than the one that I'm a part of in terms of the church size. I mean, just a, a few tens of thousands different. Um, but what's what's the number between friends? Hey, but still, I, I I think the busyness is a major theme, and what I found is it's less talking, it's silence, it's contemplation, and if it's Scripture reading, like the pra- the practice, is no longer reading, you know, tons of chapters every week. But it's you know mm. this lectio divina kind of reading where it's like yeah, one verse and just let, meditated on, and it's the like words every, read you. Yeah, for sure, and th- that's what I like. I find myself moving to something where it's it's less and it's simpler and it's quieter. And I, I don't know if that's a response to the frenetic lifestyle of like the West and 
you know, church work or what it is, but I've, I, I, I appreciate and I value the big and the loud. I think there's a place for it, but what mm. soothes my yep. soul the most is probably the, the silent and the quiet more. Yeah. But that's been, but like those practices, like you said, it have been there all, uh, you know, all along. And, and so, okay, with, with BZ's story, he talked about, he started and his wife was on this journey, but he didn't really know anyone else. And they came along after the fact. When you were going through your, your construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, did you find yourself like that you were alone in this or did you find friends early along? Uh, what, was, what was your community like? So I was at the start, it felt very alone because I didn't really know what was, and it happened very sort of gradually, um, the sort of the discontent. And then you sort of, you know, you kind of brush it off and they go, oh, you know, I'll be fine, I'll be fine, there's nothing here. But then as you kind of get more into it, you know, so I think initially it was quite, you did feel quite alone. But then I have, a, a you know, a few really good close friends uh, who I ended up talking to. And it turns out that a lot of them were going through the same same stuff. And um, so we would talk amongst ourselves. And then it was like, I actually loved the, the thing that Brian talked about was like, you know, it was like a prospector for gold and then it hit on a seam and then like they start madly digging away. And that's what was happening with us. So, you know, someone would find, you know, some kind of author or some kind of um, articles and would send it all around to each other. And it was like, yeah. oh, it's good. And it was, and it really, again, like, you know, I've said it lots of times. It's like all it was doing was giving vocabulary to what was already going on. And yep. just helped go, oh, okay, I'm not going crazy. This is not, there's nothing wrong here. This is just part of the journey. You know, this is part of spiritual kind of the, the, the walk, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think what, what and it is the letting go, which is the big part of the deconstruction, is the letting go of your ego, the letting go of thinking that I know, letting go of certainty, all these things that you've sort of been um, formed into thinking well i have to be able to have an answer for every skeptic and i have to have an answer for this and that but mm -hmm. the letting go of that and there was one quote i can't remember who said it. I, I actually can't even find where it was but it was so helpful uh, and the, at the time i read this thing and it said it said it's no longer true for me to say that i have found the path of the spirit rather the spirit has found me wandering along his path and mm -hmm. for me like that was just like such a great kind of like oh, yeah, that's right, I'm not in control, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I think that's part of, like, you know, years and years of, of, of being in control and thinking I had to have an answer for everything, um, you know, just kind of even just letting that go was such a weight just to, just to fall into the mystery, you know, and, and to mm -hmm. be okay with that, that God's got it and I don't have to have every answer. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, was while it's hard and it's difficult and you still feel alone and you're also really, really enlivened, you feel like the most spiritually alive. Well, I did. I felt the most spiritually alive that I'd ever been, you know, since I, you know, first kind of became a Christian or, you know, like a, gave my gave my life to Christ like at 18 or whatever it was, you know. So, yeah. um, so it's been an exciting journey for sure. Yeah, that's good. When, uh, when I was like 16, like I was 15, 16 was like my major like conversion to like take discipleship seriously and to, you know, practice following Jesus. Early on, I started having like these debates in school with one of my classmates, and it was like every day he would bring question after question about like critiques of Christianity and the Bible, and <laughs> this was like pre like early internet, like Al Gore was just coming up with the internet, and so he was bringing like this very rudimentary, like the print offs that had like the like the little holes on the side of paper, that kind of printer. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so, totally. I think I still have one of those. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously Australian, of course, it's a few years behind the States. But so he was bringing me all these questions, and I find myself early on, like, I was constructing my faith to defend it against him and defend it against mm. other people who were going to question me. And early mm. on, like, my understanding of spirituality was I've got to defend my faith against everyone else because they're, they're the enemy to what I'm doing. And yeah. I think that negatively shaped how I understood spirituality. It wasn't like me connecting with God. It was me validating why I want to have this intellectual idea about God. And those are vastly different tracks that you go down. And I, I wonder partially if the attraction to like the apologetic genre of like Christian literature and books and, and uh, conferences and all that is partly so people can further convince themselves of what they already believe. And so that that they're still trying to build this impenetrable 
faith against all doubt and all yeah. questions. And it's not for other people. It's really for themselves. Yeah, totally. Well, because then like the, the, all I can say is like, so for, and on that thought, when I, you know, first, the first church I got saved in was like this kind of really conservative fundamentalist kind of sect. Like it was really exclusive. They were the only ones going to heaven. Sounds a bit like the churches of Christ. Yeah. Anyway. I, um, vaguely familiar. To you. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it wasn't the churches of Christ, but anyway, um, but, <laughs> but it was a really safe kind of place to live in. Everything was black and white. It was all about who's in and who's out. And, you know, most people were out. So that was good. Um, but it was a very kind of safe, you know, very like, easy way to live there was no gray there's no tension you didn't have to it was like you had an answer for everything uh you know and I, you know two weeks after i'd like been baptized i was out you like knocking on people's doors you know like yeah, trying to convince yeah. people to come to it you know that was just the way it happened and you have these arguments with people on the doorstep and if you had a good argument you know like that was somehow you know victory for the kingdom or something yeah. um but, you know, but I mean, it's no surprise when you look at how the world's set up, right? Everything's like um, adversarial. So like a politics, yeah. everything, you know, I mean, even advertising, this product's better than that product. Yeah. I mean, it's how the way our sort of modern world works, um, or the Western world anyway. Yeah. Um, but I had a question for you, right? So the whole deconstruction thing is all good um, when you can do it on your own. But how do you do it when you're supposed to be leading people? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's challenging. And BZ was going through it in a different setting than I was. Uh, but I think, so I... Because you were like a church planter, right, then? So you well, had a bit of freedom. Yeah, like I had more freedom. But I think, so grad school for me, like when I went to seminary, that was really like where the intellectual process began. And so I I was preaching at like this interdenominational Bible study. And the guy before me was this outstanding speaker who was a hardcore Calvinist. And he's like one of those guys who he left and started pastoring a church and went from like 300 to like 15,000. Like he's that talented of a communicator. And so he goes before me and he's certain of everything. He's got everything nailed down. And then I'm just like, well, um, hey guys, uh, let's talk about, and I didn't, I didn't want to make any statements because in my head I was critiquing them already. And so I, it was tough for me because I was in a setting where I was following someone who people expected the same sort of um, communication skill and style, and I couldn't live up to that. And so I, it, it floundered, but it wasn't there wasn't any cost in that. Like I, I didn't have to to pay for anything because it wasn't like my full time job. It was what I was doing while I was going through school. But there, there's a, a book that uh, I think it's called "What Every Young Seminarian Should Read," and it basically says you shouldn't preach while you're going through seminary. And I didn't hmm. I didn't go to seminary until I had been preaching two years. I was preaching two years every Sunday at a little country church. And I was like, well, that's so dumb. That Like, that's so dumb. Of course we should be able to do this. And then I realized, like, years later, like, the, the wisdom in that, because y- you don't know everything. And one week you believe one thing, and the next week you believe another. And... Like if if people don't have some foundation before you, then they're going to be in like serious trouble um, because it's just like Jello. There's nothing that it's like wet Jello. It's not it's not solidified yet. Um, and that's so, sort of the point of seminary, right? It's like one week you're hearing one side and you go, oh, that's the truth, and then you're hearing the other side of oh, this train of thought says this. So yeah, you're going to be kind of a bit of a yo-yo, right? Yeah, for sure. And again, that's why I respect you know Brian even more because you know he did it. Uh, in a context that cost him a whole lot more. I mean, where it was a church that he had started and he had, a, you know, yeah, you knew, you knew Brian yeah. before early pre kind of. Yeah. I'd, yeah. So he spoke at our church like in like 2002 or 2003 or something. So that's probably right in the middle of when he was, uh, um, you know, going through his late night, you know, seminary as he called it. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I mean, I didn't know him personally. I just, you know, knew he had spoken and yeah. um but yeah that would have been t- that's something I that's tough like when you're trying to well you know you, you're starting asking different questions and you know to try and when you're sort of trying to you know reconstruct things and figure things out and lead mm-hmm. people at the same time um that's kind of that's that's yeah. that's a tough road yeah i think it's i would say that i was in my uh like well my... actually oh if but this would be the key right 
only because we've set up this this construct where pastors have to know everything, churches have to know everything, we, we, we have to have everything yeah. certain. So if we had a more vulnerable, more open, more transparent kind of, which is actually what communities of faith should be, then it wouldn't yeah. actually be a problem, right? But we've yeah. built up this kind of way. Because, you know, because I guess an unsure pastor doesn't grow a big, massive church. And if, yes. we're, if we're measuring our success by numbers mm-hmm. and, you know, all those kind of metrics, then, you know, I guess, you know, so I would love to see a, re- a reformation where people are okay with, um, you know, we're figuring this out together, we're wrestling in a, in a community of faith and not have to have this. Um, have it all figured out. But anyway, yeah. hey, I'm just an idealist. Yeah, but that's <laughs> like, that. that is the flaw of like the guru model. Where we come to yeah. church, you're the well. Now the churches of Christ. One of the things that I really love about my tradition is that they're like who one of my Mennonites friends said that the Mennonites always joked that uh, they keep all the grass real low, and that was kind of like their metaphor for how they treat pastors. And like the churches of Christ, like our politics don't give the the, the preacher a ton of power uh, compared to like a like a charismatic model, and so there isn't mm. as much pressure there um i would say as other yeah. denominations and you know they don't know they don't grow as big either so that's part of it but mm. i think so my i construction my deconstruction really started in in seminary and then as a church planner after my first job into church planning i feel like i was still like deconstructing um and so i think it's easier to already be in deconstruction while you're preaching than to be about to go into it because you're not having to disagree with what you've already said. You're just not saying a whole lot because you don't, you don't have a leg to stand on. And so that's, uh, I think that's the difference. Like when, for me, it was more like coming out and being able to have the confidence to say things and speak into something with like, this is really a conviction I believe in instead of just kind of uh, bouncing around and, and, and not, no sort of strong conviction. Mm. Yeah, I guess I sort of feel for those kind of the middle management pastors where, you know, you're going through a deconstruction, but then you're sort of, you know, your your job is to, you know, say a particular party line position is... So for the people that I've known, like kind of ministry-wise, that have, have uh, navigated it successfully are either they're either like a senior pastor and they run the church um, or whether it's a church plant kind of situation. Those yep. are the ones and everyone else kind of the double or check out you know yeah do something else yeah no that's just a shame you know that has to be that way but you know i guess that's that's the way it is such is life but you know one of the things that i think that so you talk about going back and appreciating the roots that you you grew up in Mm -hmm. um valuing that obviously you say you wouldn't self-identify as a catholic now but you you value what you grew up in in the catholic church for me it's like in the Church of Christ, I've come to value my tradition more on the other side, where I can value and appreciate what I learned and what I've been given. And in a lot of ways, like, so I, I was a church planner for years, and then I came back, and now I'm actually a part of a Church of Christ church again. Uh, the church plan was connected to the Church of Christ, but it didn't have the same sort of um, feel as the church that's been around for decades. And I think unless I could have gotten to my reconstruction, I wouldn't have been able to value the benefit of what like institution can be, uh, while still being aware of like, you know, institutions have their own hangups, just like a church plan, just like mm. anything does, you know? And so yep. I, I, again, that is a, the sort of like commonality and, and value and connection that you start to work towards. I think that's a, a typical process for a lot of people. Yeah. No, well, I think uh, getting back to our favorite Franciscan, um, Rich. The, the hallmark, the hallmarks of your reconstruction, uh, the transcendent include, and if you have, if you can't include everything, then you haven't actually got through to the other side yet. Um, and it's like, yeah, it is. T- now I look back, even that kind of crazy fundamentalist sect that I was in, like it was crazy in a lot of ways. But what it did give me was a real appreciation of the Bible yep. and that Scripture was there to be read and um, and to, and to have you know that it could speak to you. Um, you know, everything, all, it's all part of the journey and it's all, you know, cause sometimes you get, you know, I've got a friend at the moment, you get in that deconstruction phase and you just start railing against everything and you're angry and you're like, rah, you know, shouting at the sky and, you know, there's a place for that and a time for that, but you have to kind of move <laughs> out of that yeah. to a more graceful place, um, to be, you know, and, and because, you know, it's the whole spiral dynamics thing as well. And you have to realize, well, I, all of that was working for me for a long time and it's working for a whole lot of people right now. And 
as people journey, you know, some will be there longer than others. But you know, I guess now I see my function is that people that are going through it to be, you know, uh, a, um, uh, a help to those that are working through it and to go, yeah. hey, you know, there is, it's not the end. So I had a friend actually, so when I was going through the deconstruction, the whole dark night of the soul, I was just like in a real, real dark place. And I had a friend who had gone through it probably about 18 months earlier. And he just told me, he says, like, it's like when you're out in the ocean and there's like this huge wave coming and you see it coming and it's bearing down on you and it's bearing down on you and you just, everything in you wants to run and just get the hell away from it. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, as you, when you swim in the ocean, when those waves come, they actually pick you up and you go over the top of them and they pass over you. Mm -hmm. And was, he was just saying, it'll pass, you'll be fine, you know. Yeah. And just to have that voice on the other side to go, there is light on the other side of this. And I think that's really important for those that have are going through this process, have gone through this process to, to be there for others. And then also to recognize that I don't think this is a one-time deal, this whole reconstruction, yeah. deconstruction, death, resurrection is going to happen. You know, I'm 42 now, but like it's going to keep on happening. And yeah. now that I'm, I've accepted the process, I feel like the future's <laughs> like I feel much more confident in the future because I've accepted the process that this is how yeah. life works. Whereas yeah. your first half of life, I think you like, no, that's not how the no, that's I, I don't, that's not how the process works. You sort of you rail against it, but then when you come to accept it, then you're like, okay, this is actually good for me. You know, to, for my ego to go down, for my, to allow myself to be broken into pieces, then actually new life comes out of that. So, um, yeah, but yeah, it's painful and it's and it's a big jumping off a cliff with no safety net. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no saving that there. I almost want to say, like, I want to write things and then, like, sign my name and say, Luke Norsworthy at the age of 35. Like, I want to put my age and say, I'm going to, yeah. there's a good chance I'm going to hopefully be smarter in 10 years. When I get to 45, exactly. like, this will be a whole lot more mature. But that's, like you said, there's nothing stays the same unless it's dead and change is part of life yeah. and growth. And hopefully, um, you know, there's other stages and other, and other lessons to learn over these next. I, I'm only going to live another 80 years or so. And so I hope to think I'll learn a whole lot more by then. <laughs> Paul? Uh, just keep keep doing CrossFit and you'll be you'll be 150. Deal. Deal. Take it. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>